For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The state is looking to have about $600 million more to spend in the coming fiscal year. The Equalization Board approved a report from finance officials expecting an 8% jump in revenue, mostly on tax revenues from oil and gas. Ryan, this seems to be good news for supporters of last year's call for tax increases on energy companies. I think that it shows that the revenue that was promised with those reforms is, is being delivered. Yeah, And the, the message to legislators this year is that this is a first step. Last, last year was a first step. And, you know, they should resist any temptation to make the mistakes that over the last decade have put us in this situation. That's, you know, massive tax giveaways uh, to the to my, mainly to the folks in the corporations in Oklahoma that, that need it the least or don't need it at all. Um, and really think about how do we get ourselves back to a fully funded state government? Because even though we have much more money in the coffers than we have in the last several years and we are moving in the right direction, we are still around $800 million short uh, from our budget a decade ago whenever you adjust that for inflation. And that doesn't even begin to take into account the fact that we have a larger population and a population that has many more needs in terms of education, infrastructure, and health care. And Eva, this is uh, what the money that Governor-elect Stitt will actually look at when he put, crafts his budget. He's certainly coming in a lot better than Fallon did uh, eight years ago. Absolutely, but I think uh, he also set the tone uh, following that uh, Equalization Board meeting this week when he said, look, this should not be treated as a blank check uh, that just because we have uh, these additional funds that will be available that we're not funding pet projects. We're really we really are going to dig in and uh, make these hold these agencies more accountable and I think that's really I think that's been the consistent theme and message not only in his campaign but now in the transition period and I think that when you look at these agencies they're already requesting more dollars than this additional revenue that uh, that we're anticipating in in the budget equation for the next uh, for the next year so I think it's going to be really important and I think Ryan's right this legislation Legislature, it comes in with a, a much rosier picture than the than the, the previous two or three uh, legislative sessions. But it does mean that they are going to have to be extremely prudent in how they move forward. And even Governor Lexstead said, "Look, the rainy day fund, which will be probably with the with the monies coming in, maybe eight hundred million or something." He says it needs to be at two billion dollars so that it can sustain any downturn and not really impact core services. So I. I like the the tone and the thought process going into this up front, and we'll just have to see how this budget un, unfolds. Ryan, you've been there for good times and bad times. I know that a short little time you're in the lawmaker, but every time I talk to a lawmaker, they say it's actually easier to deal with when you don't have a lot of money than when you have extra money. Well, and that's just it, is that I think that there's going to be this temptation on the table to maybe either stop uh, consideration of new revenue uh, models that, that the legislature is considering right now, or... Uh, to give some of this money back. I think either one of those would be an incredibly dangerous position for the state of Oklahoma to, to find itself in because, you know, that, that temptation, while, while it may, there may be some perceived short-term political benefit, uh, that one, that perception is not right. I mean, Oklahomans right now really do want their government to be funded adequately. We saw that uh, in, in particular in Republican primaries around the issue of education. Um, but Oklahoma voters, this is not, you know, you're not going to lose votes by funding government. And if you move away from this revenue and you don't move, if you don't begin to think about how can we add to this revenue and get us back to a stable budget, I think we're going to find ourselves in a really difficult position, maybe later this budget year, if not uh, in subsequent years. 
Governor-elect Kevin Stitt picks a Stillwater cattle rancher to be the first female Secretary of Agriculture for the state of Oklahoma. The nomination of Blaine Arthur for the post to run the Department of Agriculture, Food, and Forestry is getting support from the Farm Bureau, the Cattlemen's Association, and other ag groups. Neva, what do you think of this nomination? I think it's a, I think it's a great nomination. It's something that I think um, maybe took some people by surprise. Um, there's uh, always the speculation of uh, who these new folks that will be coming into the new administration will be. And I mean, this is someone who uh, certainly has the background uh, and uh, and brings a different, uh, a, a different face and a different look and someone who clearly begins to articulate the same, again, themes that, we're, that we heard from Governor-elect Stead. I mean, uh, talking about the fact that, uh, uh, that they, there is a need to bring, uh, uh, to really bring young people uh, back into ag, to keep them, uh, the family farms uh, flourishing, but in a, in a in a time of technology, uh, in one of the interviews, uh, I heard her talking about the fact that a dairy uh, dairy farm here in Oklahoma was using the first robot for milk for milking. I mean, many innovative things that she is talking about uh, partnering and and working closely with the Department of Commerce to try to to try to make Oklahoma a state that will be uh, an ag processing state, not just uh, sending our products uh, elsewhere like we've been uh, 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 so much doing uh, for so long. And so I think it, I think it's refreshing and uh, it will be interesting to see as she begins to formulate and roll out to her plans, goes through the Senate confirmation process uh, and more of this uh, more of this develop but I think it's good news and the fact that we're hearing such strong accolades for uh, for this appointment from the people that are going to be most impacted and deal with her is excellent right well as she comes into the the department with uh, with a lot of controversy I mean the, the the department just earlier this week didn't approve some emergency rules around poultry farms I mean there's going to be a lot of conversation about what the legislature mm-hmm. should be doing in response to, to that lack of action there uh, that deals with pollution uh, from poultry farms around the state, but in particular in eastern, northeastern uh, Oklahoma. And you know, how does how does she do respond to that? And I think that the the legislature is going to rely a lot on the Department of Agriculture for ideas of of what what those rules should ultimately be like be like. Because you know the legislature's this is in their court now, and so she's going to walk in and have a, I think a pretty influential role uh, up front this legislative session. I I think that that Neva's right. You know we we're trying to get a lot of more uh, a lot more young folks involved in ag. Right now, we've got one of the hottest resurgences in agriculture in the state of Oklahoma right now, thanks to State Question 788, where we have cannabis farmers coming in around the state of Oklahoma that are beginning operations. And if you talk about sophisticated operations that use the latest in terms of technology uh, and, and science, these cannabis farms uh, and these cannabis grow operations, they certainly have that. Well, and hemp and was just legalized hemp by was the, just legalized. the farm. There's, there's a lot happening in agriculture right now that's, that's really exciting, and I think that it has a lot of... Uh, opportunity that it represents a lot of opportunity for Oklahomans uh, and so whoever the next secretary is and I, I believe that you know she'll she'll probably be confirmed I don't see any reason why she won't uh, you know she's going to walk into a, an exciting position in agriculture in the state I of think Oklahoma. it's interesting too when she talks about efficiency and transparency and really looking uh, at the agency and where the dollars have been expended and really beginning to talk about taking a, a look at a lot of the boards and commissions and areas where uh, really wanting to figure out what does work what doesn't work so I think it's going to be a time where it's not just uh, the changing of the guard and everything status quo. I think it's a mix it up and let's see what really needs to uh, what needs to change, and not just for change's sake, but to think to make uh, the dollars expended uh, much more accountable to the taxpayer.
A federal judge declares constitutional an Oklahoma City ordinance to ban panhandling in certain medians. The ACLU had challenged the rule, saying it took away the protected rights to free speech. Ryan, does the ACLU plan to appeal this decision? Absolutely. And and I th- we, we knew that this was a case that was likely to be headed to an appellate court, whether the ACLU's plaintiffs uh, and clients lost at this round or the city lost at this round. You know, this was... The district court level was always uh, the first step, and you know while we have a, a great deal of respect for the judge in this case, uh, and, and and Judge Heaton, he ran an incredible trial. I mean, he moved a trial that was scheduled for four days. He moved it through in two days, uh, took in a tremendous amount of evidence. We disagree with the legal analysis that he used to come to his conclusion, but we'll test that at the Tenth Circuit. Uh, ultimately, what this is is the city of Oklahoma City is restricting a. Uh, restricting speech of political actors, of uh, people that are in poverty, uh, that are trying to you know, peacefully solicit uh, contributions and, from a median. And they're taking this protected area of speech and they're taking it away and they're making up the safety justifications afterwards. There's, if, this, if the government is going to remove your right to participate in speech in a traditional public forum, they have to have a really good reason to do that. And the city didn't have one when they passed this, other than we really are tired of seeing poor people in the medians, and it, it kind of bums us out. Um, but then they came back and they said, well, traffic, and we've got to protect pedestrians, we've got to protect automobile traffic. But all of the evidence and all of the statistics that they tried to bring to bear on this, none of it justifies uh, removing this important pu- public First Amendment forum area. Neva. Well, I think it, it was three years ago uh, this month that the city council passed this ordinance. And so this has been a long, uh, a long process to get to where uh, Judge Heaton made his ruling this week. I, I do think uh, when you look at the give and take on the council, I mean, we do have a, a difference of opinion there in terms of the uh, uh, the free speech aspect versus the public safety aspect. And I think that Everyone uh, looks at this, and you can step back and say whether you agree or disagree with the with the ruling or the general premise that reducing and helping the homeless population, which is growing in 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 the metropolitan area here, and finding ways to deal with the mental health uh, issues uh, that are uh, that are associated with that is critical. And so, uh, I think I think waiting for this to go through the process uh, with the uh, uh, with the federal appeals process is one thing, but really beginning to address uh, and with council races uh, 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 going on right now, uh, moving into the, the early next year, I think these will be topics for consideration and d- debate uh, by the very folks that uh, uh, have been at the forefront of this now for three years. Okay. Well, and, and there are real ways that the city could address pedestrian safety, motor motorist safety, it, more sidewalks. Put in, put in more sidewalks. Uh, put in more bike lanes. You know, there are things which that has they could, been going they, on yeah, at, at a fairly it, significened rate uh, it could have for happened, quite some time. It could have happened faster, though, and with a lot less expense. The city knew walking into this ordinance that it was rife with constitutional defects. You know, their their own legal counsel were telling you know, were telling them, and you know, were you know, they gave this away in an open records request that they were going to this was going to be challenged, and the challenge was going to be significant, and they could possibly lose. And you know, whether it's at the district court or at the appellate court level. The city's uh, insistence on moving forward with this uh, with this panhandling legislation uh, and and making this ordinance uh, a reality was a real distraction away from efforts that they could have been doing to help out the homeless population in the city of Oklahoma City. I, I hope that in these upcoming council races that that folks take that to, to bear and they think about how we, how can we can invest in the homeless population and mental health and in pedestrian and motorist safety in a real way moving forward. 
Lawmakers are looking again to revisit the issue of corrections reform in the upcoming legislative session. And a report in the Oklahoman earlier this week shows there might be true bipartisan support for the efforts and the state legislature might even be influenced by a bipartisan effort in the U.S. Senate earlier this week on corrections reform. Neva, do you think this year will be different from the tough on crime legislatures of the past? I think it will. And I think that what we saw earlier this week on Tuesday when the Senate passed, I mean, overwhelmingly, uh, the United States Senate passed 80 seven to 12, uh, this sweeping criminal justice uh, reform. Uh, it will no doubt and may have already by the time uh, uh, our listeners are, are hearing us pass the House, and the president certainly has indicated that he looks forward to passing this as one of his uh, uh, significant uh, uh, pieces of legislation in his in his uh, first term, um, I, th- I think that it is, it, it is something that is uh, sweeping across the nation. I mean, the folks understand now that uh, we have to deal with crime. We have, to, we have to deal with the folks that we need to make sure we lock up. But at the same time, we've got to get smart on, on criminal justice reform. And there, it's, a, it's a large question with a big price tag attached to it. And I think even some of the critics who have been slow to come along, because some have not come along. There were folks in the in the Senate, uh, the 12 Republicans, who felt like uh, that that they just couldn't get there, uh, even with the many of the uh, concessions and the bipartisan give and take that came to make the final bill what it was. I think we're going to see in the uh, legislative session coming up uh, a lot of bills uh, come out. Not all of them will uh, uh, see a strong light of day, and and uh, but but the conversation will continue. And with that, I think we've got to work through. Uh, the give and take, including retroactively looking at uh, some things that uh, bills are going to be filed. I believe uh, uh, Representative Eccles and Representative Dunnington are looking at a at, at a bill that would address that specifically. Seven eighty or seven eighty one. That's right. So, uh, but but with that. The money has to come, and that's and that's one of the things. Uh, and it's not just to throw money at it to throw money at it. It's got to be done in a way that that we get some real results and we move forward. Not just to feel like we've made a little progress and then we start going backwards. We've got to make sure that these things make sense for the long term. Right. I know a lot of the lawmakers who were against a lot of this legislation have either left to go to other jobs or they've been term limited out. So it might be a little bit easier for these brand new people to come in and make some changes. A lot of new dynamics at the Capitol. We have new folks and people elected now are like, you know, we had in the last several years, a lot of the folks were elected under this old paradigm of being tough on grime. That was part of their campaign promise. It was part of the way that they talked about criminal justice whenever they first ran for office. And over the last six years, you know, that has changed a lot. And so folks that were elected in the last, you know, in this recent session or this recent cycle or two years ago, they were elected in a dynamic that really rewards politicians who embrace criminal justice reform in a sincere way. Another thing that's happened is it seems that prosecutors are beginning to lose some of their political muscle out at the Capitol. Prosecutors, by and large, district attorneys elected by Oklahomans, uh, but often elected without any sort of opposition, uh, are the biggest impediment to criminal justice reform efforts at the state Capitol. One of the things that happened, you know, there was an interesting House race where a district attorney attacked a sitting state legislator uh, for voting for criminal justice reform measures, went after them in the campaign. And guess what? The legislator got reelected, and the district attorney's power 
doesn't seem their political power that they like to flex out at the Capitol all the time doesn't seem to be as effective as people think it is. Retroactivity is incredibly important, but it should go beyond 780. There should be a presumption that we should build in a presumption to any retroactivity bill that sentencing reforms in the future are presumed to be retroactive unless the legislature states otherwise. Another thing we've got to do is put cash bail on the table. There are thousands and thousands of Oklahomans that are innocent. They haven't been convicted of anything. They're innocent sitting in jails across the state of Oklahoma right now simply because they can't afford to bond out, go back to their families and their jobs. Neva, I gotta, I'll also ask for the Republican Party, is there concern that uh, the, the whole Willie Horton thing might come up? That it's, it is this, basically they might pass some... I think that's always and- a lingering concern uh, with in the backs of the minds of some folks. But I think the overarching... A position with the public is that this is an issue that is front and center that people want to see uh, want to see that conversation not start and stop but continue and I think but I think by the same token even when we talk about district attorneys I think it's I think it is uh, would be unfair not to make the point that we have uh, some changing attitudes even in that group it's not uniformly uh, dead set against uh, and I think we're seeing even some of these uh, folks that are coming into office now uh, district attorneys, uh, judges across the board, not just legislators, who are seeing this larger conversation and are willing to, even even though not everyone's going to be in full agreement, they're willing to have an intelligent conversation and begin to move the needle in the in the right direction. I mean, it is not an all or nothing back and forth. I mean, uh, the the reform packages are just not all-encompassing and just going to do the job, period, and it's their way or the highway, it's got to be a give and take to get us long-term where we need to go. And hopefully more of this conversation going on will help inform the voter, and then uh, we'll trickle down to how they vote on on candidates, all the way from, from their state legislature, president, all the way down to city council. And, and DA. Attorney. These yeah. DA races, you know, with the ACLU, we, we are out talking to voters across the state of Oklahoma about their district attorney in this last election cycle, just saying, not about a particular candidate or a particular district attorney, but just about the office itself. We found a lot of voters didn't recognize the power of the office, didn't recognize that it was something that they voted on. Um, and, you know, if you haven't started watching it, this little plug, I'm not getting paid for this, but on Netflix, Innocent Man, which is the documentary that builds upon John Grisham's book that talks about the uh, the, the double murders in Ada. So you've got the DA district of Pontotoc County, Hughes County, and Seminole County. Watch this. It's amazing. And one of the common denominators, and I think that DAs that are trying to change their attitude, they're getting ahead of a political wind because people are beginning to realize the power of DAs. And if there's a common denominator in the folks that were both wrongfully prosecuted and convicted and almost killed uh, by the state of Oklahoma in in, uh, Ada, Oklahoma, under DA Bill Bill Peterson there, if there's a common denominator, the people are equally upset on both sides, the, the survivors of the victims and the people that were wrongfully convicted. No one's happy there. No one sees that the system is giving them justice. Right. So Innocent Man on Netflix, check it out. House Democrats say they want to work this next legislative session to expand Medicaid. Minority Leader Emily Virgin says expansion could cover an additional 200,000 low-income Oklahomans. She also says if they don't get it done through the legislature, they will push for it to go before a vote of the people. Orion Democrats will need a little bit of help from the Republicans <laughs> to get this passed. Just, just, just a little. Just a little bit. Just a little. Uh, well, they're, they're going to need Republican leadership on this. And if you don't have Republican leadership on this, it's not going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, I do think that it ultimately goes to the ballot. If there is a stain on the Fallon administration uh, that I think will, uh, will be something that she'll be remembered for, it's going to be something that she didn't do. And it's she didn't expand Medicaid. <clears throat> this is one of the uh, the worst uh, decisions that any governor in the state of Oklahoma has ever made. 
uh, was to not expand Medicaid. We're seeing rural hospitals closing. We're seeing uh, right now we have the largest decline over the last year or so in the number of people without health insurance. A lot of those folks are our children. We have uh, record numbers of children without health insurance in the state of Oklahoma expanding Medicaid. And in some states that have expanded it, they've actually seen reduction in their current cost uh, that they've seen. And even if it does cost a little bit of money, uh, the amount, the nine to one ratio that we'd get back from uh, from the federal government, plus the amount of money that would be invested in the healthcare sector that would ultimately become revenue for the state of Oklahoma um, and saving people's lives, saving rural hospitals. This is an issue that I think Republican leadership would be wise to get ahead of. But given where the governor's at on this, I don't think that Governor Stitt's going to come off his campaign promise to not expand Medicaid. If this is going to happen, it's probably going to happen at a ballot box. And Republicans can only hope that it doesn't turn into a, uh, a dynamic of Republicans against expansion and Democrats for expansion, because I don't think that that's a, a good one for them. Yeah, I know there's uh, have been conservative states out there that have expanded since the, since this whole thing. They know only within the past few years. I mean, there were three states uh, just last month, uh, Idaho, Utah, and Nebraska, that that passed uh, measures. These were Republican-controlled legislatures, and then the voters did approve Medicaid expansion. In Oklahoma, it's not, I think as we look at what, where we are now, and even the conversation that Governor-elect Stitt has had on this subject, he it's not just a, are, am I going to uh, decline it or endorse it on Medicaid expansion? What he's talking about, and I think where he's really hit the nail on the head, is that the first priority for him is to get uh, control over the health care authority. I mean, these are where the federal dollars come in. These are where the matching dollars are, the, the state dollars. I mean, this is where if they get control and really understand uh, the, um, uh, the health care authority, that will go a long way to uh, beginning to address some of these issues. So the nine to one ratio, when you talk about 900 million federal dollars coming in, it's that 100 million matching, you know, that, that the state of Oklahoma would have to come up that the, that the legislature and Governor Fallon had difficulty with. I mean, not only the price tag up front, but the uncertainty and the unknown of what, what that price tag would be down the road. And there's been all kinds of uh, uh, reports and studies that uh, suggest that that number would be voluminous and very difficult to sustain. So without a revenue stream or something dedicated to be able to ensure that those dollars would be there long term. So I think I think that this is a... A big question that will be addressed, but I think uh, targeting and really looking at uh, uh, the health care authority as a place to really delve into and figure out where the dollars are and maybe where they can be redirected as, as, the, as there's more transparency in this area would be significant. Well, and I think that it's going to be really important for the governor. You know, Governor Fallon did to seize on this $100 million number of, of the state's cost, $100 million from the state, $900 million from the federal government. That's and, a nine to one ratio. And you so that's, talked the, about. that's a nine yeah. to one, and uh, you know, I think that the idea that that hundred million dollars is a fixed amount that comes out of the state's coffers, even if it were, I mean, we we just talked about the increased amount of revenue that was coming into the state of Oklahoma. We want to invest. You know, that's a hundred million dollars to get a nine hundred million dollar return is a heck of an investment, especially whenever it improves health outcomes for the state of Oklahoma. And then when you begin, except to when you know that eventually that nine hundred million is not going to be there, and it's going to flip around to where it is going to be the state sustaining the bigger the bigger dollar for, amount. For ever since this thing passed, and, I, and I think that the, the nine hundred million is there, and and if it's not, then we can reevaluate. But as long as it's there, and it seems to be there 
indefinitely, uh, then we should be taking advantage of it. Indefinitely in the federal government's not a good equation. Well, that's true. But I mean, that's what they were saying in 2008. They were saying in three years after Obamacare passed, we'll be paying the lion's share. Well, it's still not paying the lion's share. There's still, if we had expanded, we would right now have, I mean, we would be making money rather than spending it. And we are getting, we are getting hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from the federal government. Uh, and those monies as they're coming into the health care authority and how those monies are being allocated and budgeted out. I mean, those are the things that I think we've got to really get a handle on. I mean, uh, so that those services are provided to those who really need it and where there are, you know, where there is inefficiencies or where the monies are not. Uh, uh, needed as uh, as much. Those are the places where I think you can see some significant change very quickly if the governor gets the opportunity to make that appointment of the agency head and has some control of the, not only the conversation, but the actions that take place. And we're at a spot in Oklahoma, again, where we've slipped uh, to, I think, 47th, 48th in the nation from in terms 23rd. of... From 43rd. the largest decline in, this, in the nation. And so we not only are among the worst in the nation, but we're slipping at a faster rate than the rest of the nation. And we're beginning to see uh, massive healthcare crises, in particular in rural areas and in marginalized communities. Uh, I saw a study that said two out of three deaths from 2012, I think it was 2012 to 2017 in Pittsburgh County, uh, were drug-related overdoses. I mean, we've got an overdose crisis. We've got we've got real things that are healthcare issues. And if we're dealing with them at all in Oklahoma, we're only dealing with them through our criminal justice system. And so we should be investing in our healthcare here. The the numbers that that everybody has in front of them. Uh, are, are what they are. I mean, states that have expanded Medicaid haven't experienced this massive ballooning of their budget. And if anything, they've come out neutral or they've actually ended up saving money because they're covering more folks. Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.